0: To clarify matters and to avoid confusion, the Almighty has always designated one place on earth where man can meet with Him. God offers a hotspot where you can come online with the divine. Today, that hotspot is in Christ Jesus. In Old Testament times, it was the temple in Jerusalem. The next 15 Psalms, 120 through 134, are titled A Song of Ascents. Some commentators translate the phrase A Song of Steps and relate these 15 songs to the 15 steps inside the court of Herod's temple. The best understanding, though, of these Psalms is that they were sung by the Hebrews as they journeyed up to the temple. Jerusalem sits atop five mountains. Thus, to reach the city from any direction, it requires an ascent. Exodus 34, verse 24, commanded the Jews to appear in Jerusalem three times a year to celebrate the festivals of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. They sung these songs as they made their journey. These were the pilgrim songs. On our t- tours to Israel, as the bus climbs the mountain toward Jerusalem, I love to get out my Bible and read a few of these Psalms of Ascent. It gives you the feel of what it was like for those pilgrims on foot. Of course, we as Christians are also on a spiritual pilgrimage. We're on our way to heaven, the new Jerusalem. And as we grow in Christ, we are ascending, getting to know God, becoming like Him, sharing Him with others is always an upward move. In Philippians 3 verse 14, Paul says, I press toward the goal for the prize of of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul refers to the Christian life as the upward call of God. These psalms were written for our journey as much as they were for the Jewish pilgrimage. Notice also these 15 songs are organized in five groups of three. Each triad starts with a psalm that expresses trouble. Psalm 120, 123, 126, 129 and 132. The next psalm in the grouping conveys trust in the Lord, and the final psalm records the Lord's triumph over the difficulty. Five times the psalmist takes us from trouble to trust to triumph. One other thought before we start. The pilgrim's journey to Jerusalem was always an uplifting experience. It was a spiritual ascent. You left behind the daily grind, and you climbed into the presence of God. And the same is true for us. Worship is always an ascending experience. Psalm 120 begins In my distress, I cried to the Lord, and he heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. Now, this is a strange way to start a happy trip. Why well, begin a religious pilgrimage with a concern about perverse lips? Understand, most pilgrims made these journeys with other friends. It was like traveling in a family reunion. Remember when Jesus was 12 years old, his parents, Joseph and Mary, returning from the feast, didn't even realize that Jesus had been left behind. Apparently, they were returning in a group, and they were talking to their friends. I'm sure folks look forward to these pilgrimages to catch up on the latest news. But the trips could get tainted. They could become gossip sessions. It's sad that the same can happen at a church function. How often do prayer requests resemble juicy gossip? When we ascend to worship, let's use our lips to praise God, not lie. Let's speak the truth, not deceit. I've heard it said, those who gossip should be hung by the tongue, and those who listen to gossip should be hung by the ear. Actually, we need to love our enemies. But if you've ever been slandered, you can identify with the sentiment Loose lips can do horrible damage. He continues, What shall be given to you or what shall be done to you, you false tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree. Coals from a broom tree retain their heat for a very, very long time. He says a gossip's tongue is like a flaming arrow. The only difference between an arrow and the gossip is the arrow's wounds heals faster. Gossip is like mud on a wall. You can wipe it off but it still leaves a spot. He goes on, Woe is me that I dwell in Meshach and that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. And here Psalm 120 becomes prophetic. Meshach, or Russia, and Kedar or the Arabs, are Israel's two chief enemies today. And despite their rhetoric, the Muslim nations surrounding Israel are not interested in peace. As the psalmist says, they hate peace. They will not be satisfied until Israel is wiped off the map and driven into the sea. The psalmist, 3,000 years ago, speaks for the modern state of Israel today in verse 7. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Psalm 121 begins I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? Now, Jerusalem was built on top of five hills. Zion is to the west. Number three on the map there is the mountain of Zion. Ophel is to the south, down below the Temple Mount. That little oblong section is Mount Ophel. Scopus is to the north. Up above, just to the uh, upper right-hand corner of the Temple Mount, that's Mount Scopus to the north. Olivet, the Mount of Olives, is to the east, where number one there is in the map. And at the center, number two on the map, is Mount Moriah, or what we call the Temple Mount. Jerusalem, built on top of five hills. The city rises 2,550 feet above the Mediterranean Sea to the west, It rises 3,800 feet above the Dead Sea to the east. So from all four directions, in times of trouble, people would lift up their eyes and they would look to the King of Jerusalem. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. You know, today we drive from Jericho up to the city of Jerusalem on a modern freeway. But for many, many years, the tour bus actually drove the ancient pilgrim's path. And it was some treacherous terrain. The road was narrow and it hugged the mountainside. And at places, I can remember looking out the window, and there were places where the tires on the bus were within inches of slipping over the edge into the ravine below. The Jews also who made this pilgrimage, they knew these dangers. But they trusted in God to keep them safe on their pilgrimage. He adds in verse 3, He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Isn't that great? God never sleeps. Now at times we get a little sleepy. At times we nod off or doze off. As a matter of fact, some of you, this will happen to you tonight. Toward the end of the Bible study, you'll start to nod off or doze off. But God is constantly vigilant. He never takes his eyes off his people. He never closes his eyelids. His focus is always on you and me. Isn't that wonderful? In 1989, one of the worst environmental disasters in history occurred off Prince William Sound in Alaska. The Exxon Valdez hit a reef and spilled 10.8 million gallons of fuel into the ocean. And what caused the catastrophe? The navigator fell asleep at the helm. Bad stuff happens when people get tired and they doze off. Once I pulled up behind another car at an intersection and I fell asleep for a second. Just just for a second. My eyes just shut and I just went to sleep just for a second. And I bumped the car in front of me and my insurance ended up buying the guy a real nice new bumper. Terrible things happen when you nod off at the wrong time. And yet here's the good news. God never slumbers, nor does God sleep. He never naps. God's eyes are always on His people. He is ever vigilant, watching over you and me. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. Now, most warriors were right-handed. And they hold their sword in their right hand. And this is why a warrior would do his best to keep his right hand in the shade. This meant his movements were hidden And it was obscured from his opponent. If he kept his hand in the shade, this is what gave him the advantage. His right hand was in the shade. Here the Lord is saying that I want to be your advantage. I'll be your edge. If you trust in me, the Lord is your shade at your right hand. He says, the sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. And the Hebrew word translated preserve here, it means to fence or to hedge in. The story of Job comes to mind. Remember, the Lord planted a protective hedge around Job. And Satan couldn't harm a hair on Job's head without first getting God's permission. It's encouraging for us to know that nothing can get to me but that it doesn't first pass through him. We have a father filter. God loves us. He has preserved our soul. Verse 8, the Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Now Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Hey, are you glad when Sundays roll around? How do you react when the alarm clock goes off on Sunday mornings? Are you excited to worship God? I've gotten to the point where I can't go to sleep on Saturday night. I really get excited about Sunday mornings. I love coming and being here to worship the Lord with you in the Lord's house. Your feet hit the floor on Sunday morning with enthusiasm. David was glad when it was time to worship with God's people. He says, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Now, not literally. They're making a pilgrimage. But in his mind, in his heart, he had already arrived in the gates. This is so similar to our predicament in Christ. Physically, we're on a pilgrimage. We're passing through this earth. But according to Ephesians 2, verse 6, spiritually, we're already seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He goes on, he says, Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together. And it's so true. When you go there, you see this. The old city of Jerusalem is a compact city. Within the walls of Jerusalem... The city is divided into four quarters. Each section surrounds a sacred shrine. In fact, the northeast corner of of the city of Jerusalem is the Muslim quarter. It butts up to the Temple Mount. To the southeast lies the Jewish quarter, which leads to the Wailing Wall. The northwest corner, or quadrant of the old city, is the Christian quarter, And it includes the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And then the southwest quadrant is the Armenian Quarter. It's the site of the Last Supper. The area of the whole city of Jerusalem, the old city, is less than a single square mile. It's compacted together. It's jammed together. I think of Jerusalem like a golf ball. It's real small in size, but a lot goes in it, and it's tightly wound up. It's really compressed. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together. Jerusalem is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. The testimony of Israel was another name for the Ark of the Covenant. And you remember, inside the Ark was the jar of manna, the rod that confirmed Aaron as priest, and the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Over the Ark was the Shekinah glory. The ark testified to Israel's history and to God's glory. He says, for thrones are set there for judgment. The thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls. Prosperity within your palaces. You know, the word Jerusalem means city of peace. City of peace. Yet no city has failed to live up to its name as miserably as Jerusalem more wars have been fought over the holy city than any other city on earth in fact even today conflict still surrounds jerusalem and yet jerusalem is god's city it is still a strategic piece in god's plan for the end of the age and folks who love the lord and folks who love israel will always pray for the peace of jerusalem in verse 8 david continues to wish jerusalem well he says for the sake Of my brethren and companions, I will now say, Peace be within you. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Now, Psalm 123 Unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. Until he has mercy on us. Oriental slaves were ruled by a master and a mistress. And often they were so well trained that they responded to mere hand gestures. A snap of the fingers or a raised hand was the equivalent to a command. And here the psalmist says that he looks to God as a slave looks to the hands of his master. In other words, he's so eager to obey God. That God doesn't even have to say a word to him. Just communicate the appropriate gesture and the the psalmist is ready to jump in response. He says, have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us. For we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorn of those who are at ease with the contempt of the proud. Obviously, his eyes are not only on the Lord. He's disturbed, too, by the proud and the arrogant folks who oppose God. And the satisfied, people who don't sense their need for God, all this upsets him. Now, Psalm 124 is David's song. It's interesting, 10 of these 15 Psalms of Ascent are anonymous. Four were written by David, and one was written by his son Solomon, Psalm 127. Psalm 124 begins, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, Let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive when their wrath was kindled against us. Boy, what about you? In looking back on your life and in reflecting on some of the tight spots that you've seen, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, what would have happened to us He continues, he said, then the waters should have overwhelmed us. The stream would have gone over our soul. Then the swollen waters would have gone over our soul. He's speaking metaphorically of an invading army into the land. If the Lord had not been on our side, we would have been overflowed by by the invaders. We would have been conquered, but the Lord stood by us and protected us. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth, our soul has escaped as a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken if we have escaped. Like a feeble bird that just flew away in the nick of time, Israel had escaped danger so often in her past. It says, Our help is in the name of the Lord who has made heaven and earth. And the psalmist's conclusion, our God is faithful to rescue his people. Well, Psalm 125 begins, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. The Hebrew word Zion means refuge or even castle. You see, Jerusalem's elevation made people think that it was invincible. When David laid siege to Jerusalem, when Jerusalem was in the hands of the Jebusites, when he first stormed the walls of the city, the Jebusites laughed at him. They were sure that no one could ever penetrate the walls of Jerusalem. I mean, it set so high. They felt that no one would ever be able to overcome those walls. In fact, they boasted, they bragged that even the lame and the blind could defend this city. David, though, he slipped in through the the underground waterway, and he was able to send a man in who unlocked the gates, and, and the men of David came pouring in, and he conquered the city by Slipping through the gates, not necessarily going over the walls. But here the psalmist points out that it's not Jerusalem. It's not Mount Zion who's strong. But it's those who trust in the Lord. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. This is the invisible force, the invincible force. Those who trust in the Lord. Men and women with faith, these are the immovable objects. If you trust in the Lord, you cannot be moved. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forever. Boy, what a comfort that is for believers. As Jerusalem was couched around those mountains, the Lord surrounds His people. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous reach out their hands to iniquity. The only way the wicked can rule is if the righteous help them and join in their sin, He's saying. He says, Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. As for such as turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord shall lead them away with the workers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. God's way is straight and narrow. Jesus told us that. Beware of the crooked path. Remember the old nursery rhyme? There was a crooked man and he walked a crooked mile and he found a crooked sixpence a pun of crooked style. He bought a crooked cat and caught a crooked mouse and they all lived together in a little crooked house. Be careful. View your life from the wrong perspective or from a warped perspective and every aspect of your life will become bent and will become crooked. The only way for a crooked life to straighten out is for us to trust the Lord, for us to fear Him. Well, Psalm 126 begins, when the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. Now, Psalm 137 is sort of the opposite of Psalm 126. Psalm 137 recounts the bitterness the Jews experienced when they were taken exile into Babylon. In fact, one of the exiled Jews penned these words. He said, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. It was an awful day when they were deported, when they found themselves in this foreign land, exiles from the temple and from their home. But Psalm 126 reminds us of how quickly God can turn the tables. The Jews thought they'd be in exile forever. Babylon seemed invincible. Yet one night, the Persians dammed up the Euphrates River and they slipped in under the walls of Babylon through the dried up riverbed. The city was taken that night without firing a shot. And one of the very first decrees from the prin of the new ruler Cyrus allowed the Jews to return to Judah. And the Jews couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe their, their turn of events, the change of fortune. It was all like a dream, the psalmist says. We were like those who dream. They had to pinch themselves to, just to make sure that they were really awake, that this was really true. They laughed together. They began to sing. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. What was a dream to the Jews was also a testimony to the nations of the power of God. Even the nations took note of God's intervention. He says, bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. You know, the streams in Israel's Negev, or its southern region, are seasonal. And they'll, these waterways, these wadis as they're called, they'll fill up in the rainy season. But they're dry the rest of the year. And the psalmist is here praying for God to return the Jews to Judah as the spring rains bring water back to the desert. He says, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. Isn't that wonderful? God turns tears into joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Notice that. Your tears are seeds of future joy. Whenever we mourn, whenever we shed tears, God sees those tears. But they become seeds for something new and better that He wants to do in our lives. God turns tears into joy. Psalm 127 is also one of the Psalms of Ascent. It was written by David's son Solomon. This is a wonderful psalm, one of my favorites. It begins, Unless the Lord builds the house, They labor in vain who build it. Now, Psalm 127 was written by the master builder, the master architect, Solomon. All over Jerusalem, in fact, all over Israel, there were fortresses and there were walls and there were palaces that testified to Solomon's construction prowess. Of course, Solomon's greatest achievement was the temple in Jerusalem. He spent seven years and wealth untold constructing the first temple in Jerusalem. And yet throughout the construction, throughout its progress, Solomon had this knowing sense that his part in the project was in reality minor. That there was a spiritual supervisor on duty. That there was someone else calling the shots and doing the work. In reality, God was building the house through Solomon's efforts. But if God had not been part of the construction, it would have failed. Solomon admits, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. You know, often church leaders forget this principle. We trust in the latest gimmick or survey or method or technology rather than trusting the Lord Himself to build His church. If we do anything of eternal value, God has to be involved. Yes, we have a part but it's one-tenth of one percent compared to the part that God plays. In fact, Solomon goes further. It's not just the Lord who builds the house, but it's God who sustains what's been built. He adds, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. What God builds, He's faithful to watch over and ensure its safety. And that's why we're told in verse 2, it is vain for you to rise up early to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. I mean, if we're trusting God to do the work, why are we so stressed out? Why are we getting up early every morning? Why are we going to bed late at night? Why are we burning the candle on both ends? Go ahead and sleep in one morning if you're trusting God to take care of it. God can handle it. You go ahead and sleep in. God will take care of things. He can handle things. Knock off early one night if God is in control. I mean, if God's in charge of things, why not play nine holes of golf on your way home tomorrow night? Treat yourself, okay? God has everything under control. Pastor James back there shaking his head. Yeah, yeah. If God is in charge, why aren't we enjoying our life more? That's the big question. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't work hard. But sometimes we do act as if it's all on our shoulders. That God has no role at all in our endeavors. How foolish. Unless the Lord builds the house, you labor in vain who build it. Remember the Jewish priests, they were always required to wear linen garments, breathable fabrics. Why? So they wouldn't perspire. You see, a sweaty priest was a poor representative of God. Everyone should see that God's work is no sweat. Unless the Lord builds the house, they that labor, labor in vain. In verse 3, Solomon transitions from building temples to building families, from raising buildings to raising babies. He says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Now, the word heritage literally means an assignment. Parents, did you know that your child is a special assignment given to you by God? Your son, your daughter is your God-given assignment. Training your child is your mission. There are not many things that you can say God has told you authoritatively, dogmatically, that this is what He wants you to do. But training your child is one of them. It's your mission. It's your assignment. And you're going to be graded on the job that you do. Parents need to treasure their kids. They need to always see their kids as a gift As a blessing, as an opportunity, as a reward from the Lord. As one man said, children should be viewed as valuable additions, not needed deductions. And and this is what many so-called Christian countries today have forgotten. Now, Now think about how population trends work. Take two couples, four people. These two couples each have one child these children then marry and they have one child all of a sudden you've gone from a population of four to a population of one in two generations a 1.0 growth rate shrinks the population 75 percent in just two generations in fact, sociologists say that it takes a 2.11 growth rate to actually replenish a society. Less than a 1.9 is the path to extinction. Today, 31, the 31 countries of the European Union have a combined population replacement rate of 1.38 kids per couple. That's not good. And yet, the population of Europe grows. And why? Due to the Muslim immigration. In fact, the population replacement rate in France is 1.9, but among Muslims in France, it's 8.1. Do you realize that by the year 2027, one in five Frenchmen will be Muslim? Now, I know nobody cares about France, but, you know, it's alarming. It's estimated that by the year 2030, 20- 2048, France will be an Islamic state. Islam will have taken over France without firing a shot just through the immigration and the population rates. Today, in the Netherlands and in Belgium, half of all newborns are born to Muslim families. If the current growth rates and immigration policies continue, Europe will become an Islamic continent in the near future. Here's what I'm saying. Christian culture in Europe has stopped reproducing itself. And the growth rate is not much better in the United States. With our Latino population, our growth rate is 2.11, the bare minimum for sustainability. Without that demographic, there's a 1.6 growth rate. In other words, we're not reproducing enough children to maintain our way of life. And of course, the question is why? And there are numerous answers. Feminism has deceived millions of women into thinking that motherhood is a form of slavery. Rather than celebrate motherhood and children, we mock and ridicule women who choose to have large families. Good old Mother Hubbard would be anathema in our society. Today, our feminist culture teaches women that childbearing is an interruption in their right to financial independence and a career. Of course, there are other problems. Tax laws. And government policies and access to abortion all contribute to the population squeeze that's occurring today in America and in Europe. Did you know that since World War II, abortion has robbed the world of 1.5 billion people? But perhaps the biggest culprit is our own selfishness and our own abandonment of the Christian worldview. We ignore the Bible. Rather than adopt a biblical attitude and view kids as God's blessing, an opportunity to pass on to a new generation, a love for God, and a love for life, and a love for people. Instead, we too have fallen victim of seeing children as interruptions and inconveniences. We've stopped being obedient to God's command to be fruitful and to multiply. And this is tragic, and it will have enormous consequences on our way of life. If you're married and if you're of childbearing age, get on with it. No, I'm not not saying ignore wisdom in planning your family. You, You need to be wise. You need to think it through. But we all should celebrate and value children. And we should honor parents, not just on Mother's Day, but on every day. Solomon continues his appraisal of kids. He says, they're like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. Children are both a reward and they are a responsibility. Understand the bow and arrow was a breakthrough in ancient warfare. With a bow, you could now kill a foe at a distance. Beforehand, it was all just hand-to-hand combat. This new technology, though, sent the weapon on ahead. And this should be the goal of our parenting. Not just to keep kids tucked away forever in the quiver, but to send them on ahead. Hey, I want my kids to go farther and to go higher and to go straighter than I've traveled. You know, often my kids will try to cop out, you know, Dad, when you were a kid, you did. And you know, I'm quick to squelch that stuff. I'm up front with them. I've told them from the beginning, if they don't turn out better than me, I'll be extremely disappointed. My responsibility is to aim them in the Lord's direction and then send them sailing further and higher than I've ever been. If they set their sights on me, they've shot too low. Our children are like arrows that we send out ahead that can accomplish more than we could ever dream. Of course, archery is is an art. It's, It's a skill. You know, Robin Hood makes it look easy, doesn't he? But there's a lot that goes into shooting a bow and arrow, just as there is a lot that goes into parenting a child. There's attention on the string. tension has got to be just right. The position of the arms and the shoulders, the release, the aim. Measuring the loft and the distance. There are a lot of moving parts in archery. And if the archer is off a fraction in any of his calculations, he can miss the target by 30 feet. And the same is true with our parenting, especially when our children are little. When they're young, that's the time when we've got to get it right. You know, if your trajectory is off when a child is young, by the teenage years you can have a real problem on your hands. It's it's been said that by the time a child is five years old, the parents have done 50% of all they'll be able to do to affect that child's future. That means that you can't slack off after the child, you know, You can't, you can't when the child's young. you got to stick with it. you got to be vigilant. That's the time for you to have an impact on that child's life. Of course, once they turn five, that doesn't mean you can go on vacation either. But it just means that the earlier years are the better years to make an imprint on that child's life. Perhaps you've heard of the phenom contraction. It, it, it's a phenomenon. It's about the larynx, the human larynx. Apparently, we're born, a baby's born, and the larynx is very soft and very pliable. But as the child begins to learn words and begins to mimic their parents' language, the larynx hardens around the sounds that it most commonly forms. In fact, once the larynx forms around certain sounds, it's hard to retrain it to make other sounds. This is why a person's accent is hard to alter. Even when they learn a new language, they still speak it with the same accent. I mean, place a Chinese baby in your home and he or she will end up speaking English. And not just English, but English with a southern accent. A southern accent will come out of that Chinese child. In fact, no matter how hard he tries, he'll probably never be able to learn to replicate a Chinese accent because in those early years, the larynx is formed Around those certain sounds. And this is not just true with language, it's also true with other types of behavior. As, as one author put it, children are wet cement. It's true. You've got just a short time to shape them and form them before their attitudes and actions harden into habits. Years ago, I read a quote by famed French scientist Louis Pasteur. Pasteur's insight has guided me in my own parenting. And after four kids, I still agree. He says, when I approach a child, he inspires in me two sentiments. Tenderness for what he is and respect for what he may become. If you're a parent of a young child, that's what you've got to keep in tension. Yes, tenderness for what he is, but also respect for what he can become. Good parents are kind and tender, but they also keep an eye on the goal. And they allow just enough challenge into their child's life to build the character that they'll need later. Solomon wraps up Psalm 127 in verse 5. He says, Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. And here's the million-dollar question for parents. How many is a quiver full? And I don't think there's an answer to the question. For every quiver is a different size. Our quiver held four. Your quiver might hold two. Or twelve. And you might think it holds two, but then God knows it can hold three. And so that happens too, you know. But happy is a man whose quiver is full. Kathy and I have been rewarded with four, four times with four beautiful wonderful children. They are our rejoicing and they're our responsibility. And when asked to describe them, here's how I do it. The oldest, you know him. He's the quarterback. He's the leader. My daughter, she's the cheerleader. My third born, he's the kicker. He's the, he's, the, he's the football player. He always You always get a kick out of Nick. And then Mac, what is Mac? He's the end, Lord willing. Well, let's do one more psalm. Psalm 128 also focuses on the family. For the Jews, their annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem were family affairs. These pilgrimages were family times for the Jews. And Psalm 128 addresses the man or woman who fears the Lord. God blesses such a person. But here's how God blesses a person who fears Him. He doesn't necessarily bless him with fame or with fortune. But he blesses him with real riches. He blesses that man at the very heart of his home. God blesses him in the area of life that is most important, his family life. He may not be that successful in business or in the community, but he achieves where it really counts. God blesses the man who fears him at the very heart of his home. Verse 1, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways, When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy and it shall be well with you. And I know men who leave for work every morning and they labor hard for their money and their houses and their cars, but there is no happiness in their life. At home, around the dinner table, there's only tension and animosity and friction. They're at war with their wife. Their kids hate them. There is no happiness at home. And I don't care how much money you have or how many material possessions you you occur in life. If you don't eat and sleep in a happy home, if you don't have happiness around your table, so what? All your success is hollow. The psalmist says of the man who fears the Lord, Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house, your children like olive plants all around your table. Notice this. His wife is called a fruitful vine. A vine does three things. It clings, it climbs, and it clusters. And here's what makes a good wife. She clings to her husband. She gives him attention and affection, time and tenderness. She is submissive to her husband. But then she also climbs spiritually. She doesn't just live for her husband, oh no. She pursues a deeper life with God. She stands for Jesus on her own. And lastly, she bears clusters of fruit. Her life is a blessing to others. She yields spiritual fruit. People see traces of God all over her life. And because she clings to her husband, he loves her in return. And because she climbs spiritually she has her husband's respect. And because she clusters with fruit, he admires her all the more. A good wife is like a fruitful vine. She clings and she climbs and she clusters. And notice he also mentions this man's kids. He says, your children are like olive plants. Now, now you've got to know, an olive tree is not the prettiest looking tree in the orchard. The trunk of an olive tree is gnarled and twisted and knotty. In fact, it takes years of cultivation before an olive tree ever begins to bear olives. But if you're persistent and if you're patient, an olive tree can be extremely productive. And so it is with our kids. We've got to be patient. It takes years to raise that child. We've got to give them time to grow. At times they get gnarly and twisted and ugly. But we've got to be patient with them and we've got to stick with them. You know the mood in today's society is to push our kids academically and athletically to expect more and more sooner and sooner. A child's character though forms though a child's character forms early their talents and their skills mature over time and so it takes time to raise that child in the way you want him to go. Olive trees are also known for their durability and for their longevity. An olive tree is a rugged plant In fact, once an olive tree is full grown, it takes very little upkeep and very little nurturing. In fact, you can transplant an olive tree in a different environment and it will still be productive. A mature olive tree is practically indestructible. And this should be the goal for our kids. You want your kids to sink their roots deep into God so that when mom and dad aren't around, they'll still make wise decisions and they'll still want to serve God and they'll still bear fruit pleasing to to Him. And even when they're uprooted and placed with a new environment, they'll still have their bearings. They'll still be productive for God. Notice verse 4. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. You know, I love Psalm 128. It illustrates what I want most out of my life. At the heart of my home, I want a wife, who is like a vine, and I want kids who are like olive trees. But you see, here's the frustration. How do you cultivate such a wonderful life? I mean, surely God gives you ten steps. Surely He lays out the formula. Surely He gives you the blueprints. He tells you what will work. That's not how God does it. Go back to verse 1. God provides us here just two guidelines. He says, fear the Lord and walk in His ways. Here's how you become a man who is blessed at the heart of his home. Here's how you have a a fruitful wife, a fruitful vine for a wife and olive plants for kids. Here's how you do it. You fear the Lord and you walk in His ways. That's the the procedure. You put God first in all you do. That's what it means to fear the Lord, to respect Him in all you do, to put Him first. And then you live a biblical life. You, you, You honor Him. You walk in His ways. Notice this, God does, He tells us to do two things. Fear the Lord and walk in His ways. Notice what He's doing here. God is addressing the center of my life and He's addressing the circumference of my life. If I fear and reverence God enough to follow Him, my wife and my kids will respect me enough to follow me. If I look to the Word of God to shape the details of my life, my wife and kids will be inclined to trust in my leadership. At the heart of my home, I fear the Lord. That's the center. At the circumference, I'm walking in God's ways. Every person's circumstances are different. And that's why God doesn't give us a a step-by-step plan. But if we let the fear of God govern the center of who we are, and if we let the Word of God rule the circumference of who we are, our lives will line up perfectly, and we'll be blessed people at the very heart of our home. Psalm 128 closes with a blessing. The Lord bless you out of Zion. And may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. And this is what I'm waiting on. My children's children. I hear it's great. You love them. You get to spoil them. Then you give them back to their parents. I hear it's a great gig. Up until then, I'll just have to continue practicing on all the little tykes here at Calvary Chapel. Bring on those Blevins girls and the Davies boys and all the others out here. We'll just have to keep practicing on them. Father, thank you for your love for us. And we thank you, Lord, for your word tonight. Bless our moms again today. Lord, we just pray that, that you would bless us, Lord, where it really counts. That, that we would allow the fear of God to govern the center of our lives and the Word of God to govern the circumference of our lives. And Lord, we, we leave it to You to bless us where it matters most. Not necessarily in our wallet or in our, our business or in our community, but where, where it really matters at the very heart of our home. Bless us there, Lord. Bless us where it really counts. May there be happiness at the very center of our home. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.